I love this story. Uh, and, I, and I just want to preface something. As we start, and I know some uh, give me a hard time for this, uh, but I'm going to start off with a CrossFit story, okay? Uh, so, uh, but I think it applies uh, to everybody. Uh, so that's my preface, and I had a picture, and anyways. Uh, it was a picture of this woman. Her name is Tia Claire Toomey, and, and um, you just have to Google her or look her up. I had a picture. Uh, and it was a picture of her, uh, not last year, but two years ago at what we would call the CrossFit Summer Games. Uh, and for those of you that aren't familiar, the Summer Games is like the Super Bowl of CrossFit. It's like the championship. There's essentially playoffs, and then there's you know, this online where thousands of people compete, and they get filtered through these competitions. Uh, and then in August, coming up, uh, there's this competition called the Games, uh, where the best of the best compete. And in the picture that I, shown, that I was going to show you, her name was Tia, Tia, Tia Claire Toomey, uh, and uh, two years ago, she got second place. Second place. And it was heartbreaking for her because you can imagine at that level, those second place is a high achievement, uh, that there's still some level of disappointment uh, because she did not win first. Uh, and then the following year, which was just last year, uh, lo and behold, she actually won uh, first pl- place in the CrossFit Games. Now, between these years, what you don't see between these pictures uh, of her winning first and her winning second uh, is this transformation that she had to endure. Now, uh, CrossFit as a company, what they do is they put out an annual like documentary. As a matter of fact, if you are bored one day and want to watch it on Netflix, uh, it is there. But two years ago, this annual documentary where they documented the CrossFit Games and the athletes, uh, the year that, that Tia Toomey won second place, uh, though she was uh, physically capable of doing many of the, uh, of the events, the workouts, the you know, lifting, the running, and, and whatever it is, what we notice is not just her uh, physical ability, uh, but her mental ability. Uh, and, and I would venture to say, Maybe the lack of uh, mental ability, mental uh, resilience. Throughout the whole documentary, what they would highlight, and I know this is part of the film, is what they would highlight is a bit of her attitude. Self-deprecating, self-doubtful, the sense of faithlessness, the sense of I'm not good enough, the sense of I can't do it, though physically she proved many people wrong. Uh, and at the end of the, the documentary, there's a bit of heartbreak uh, because she was already so down on herself. And, and then a year later, the same documentary comes out with a very different result where Tia Toomey actually wins first place. And, and what we see is a huge transformation in, in her attitude, in, in her mental game, in, in her resilience. That two years ago, uh, she was so self-deprecating and so doubtful uh, that a year later, uh, she said that as much as she worked physically for, to move from second place to first place, as much as she worked out and, and trained physically, she did the same amount of work, if not more work, in her mental game. And, and she would attribute her movement from second place to first place, not just her physical abilities, but the ability that she was able to move from a place of self-doubt and self-deprecation to a place of hope and a place of confidence and a place of knowing who she is, what she's done, what she's already 
accomplished. See, what you would notice between the two films is that physically, she was the same to me. Mentally, she was completely different. And again, it's something that she would attribute to her success. Now, this whole idea is not limited to just CrossFit. This is true uh, for any physical activity you might compete in or or play in just for fun. This attitude, this phenomenon uh, applies to your job, to your school, to your art, to your parenting, to your marriage, to your friendships, to your finances. See, the amount of physical and tangible, what we would call external work, you put into something uh, in your life will oftentimes require the same amount of work, if not more work, internally. I'll say this again because this is something that's super important, not just in our daily lives, but even in our faith, that uh, the amount of physical and tangible, what we would call external work, we put into something, anything, you name it, you fill in the blank of something that you care for and want to improve in. The amount of physical and external work you put into that, the same amount of work you have to put in internally, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And I would say, even in our faith and even in our daily lives, it's this side that we spend most of our time in. I need to externally improve. When the reality is, yes, that may in fact be true, but also is true the other component, the component of our internal work, which is oftentimes forgotten. See, when I first became a Christian, this was so true, where I would meet with uh, a youth pastor, someone who I love and adore, and someone who I keep in contact even to this day. But I remember when I first, first uh, came to faith, uh, we had a conversation about what it looks like now to move uh, from this idiot seventh grade boy uh, to now still an idiot seventh grade boy, but less of an idiot seventh grade boy, Uh, someone who has now decided to live for Jesus. What does that look like? And and I can't, and I'll never forget that I was so overwhelmed with, man, I can't do it because it it was a list. And, And it was a list of external things that I need to do to improve my faith, such as, uh, well, you need to read the Bible for at least 30 minutes every morning. And I remember it was that specific. It was 30 minutes. And I've told stories about this before where I would say, okay, I'm going to get up. I'm going to read the Bible for 30 minutes. Uh, and I'll look at the clock. And it was like maybe 22 minutes in. I'm like, all right, I got eight minutes. I just got to power through this. I mean, I would not let myself out of the room. I would not let myself move on because I had to do this external thing for 30 minutes. And I remember it was not only read the Bible, you have to pray before every meal. So even to this day, I try to pray before every meal. You have to evangelize. You have to tell people about Jesus. You have to go to church every Sunday. And so I always got hung up on my faith being contingent upon my church attendance. And I would say, and may you be relieved that that is not true. See, there were tangible and physical ways, yes, to grow in my faith, but what was missing is this transformation internally, internally in my heart and mind. 
And oftentimes, again, when it comes to, yes, it could be a crossfit workout, it could be a workout, it could be a competition, it could be your work, it could be your family, it could be whatever it is. There's so much work that, re- that is required tangibly and externally. But may we not forget uh, that even in that, there's something that must be transformed within. And, and I would go as far as to say in our faith, uh, if we only focus on the little things that we have to check off in our faith, that's legalism. That's something actually that Jesus warned us against. If we start from our actions and our behavior, our faith becomes legalism. But what Jesus requires of us is not a transformation just in our behavior, which is simply behavior modification, but it's actually an entire paradigm shift internally. And it's this paradigm shift that we have internally that results into a change in our behavior, not the other way around. So when we look at the story of Tia Tumi, it wasn't that she just improved physically, though I'm sure she did. But what triggered that was this transformation in her paradigm, moving from self-deprecation to I can't do it, to self-doubt, to you know what, I can do it, I will work harder, I will make it happen. It's from that that rooted out or rooted into a transformation. And in this story, I know that we've heard this story over and over and over again, but may we not miss the point here. The the point here is that very fact that our faith begins with an internal shift in our paradigm. Our faith isn't simply about changing our behavior. It's about changing what we believe about ourselves, about God, about the world. And I would say, and if you're anything like me, the, the, the hardest part of living out our faith, to truly live out the way that Christ called us to live, is not the things that we have to do. I mean, if we are just reading the Bible and the Old Testament and the New Testament, it says, thou shalt not kill. Okay, for most of us, that's not that hard to do, right? I, I would hope. Thou shalt not steal. For most of us... Uh, Hopefully, that's not very difficult to do. And if you need an ancient, this is what a, a pastor friend of mine said, if you need an ancient book, a real, the Bible, to tell us that killing is wrong, we are already in trouble. We're already in trouble. Because what God has planted in us already is beauty that needs to be discovered. And so our starting point is not the way that we have to change our behavior because that is a result of changing our paradigm. And I wish I could unpack Luke chapter 5 completely. We'd be here for hours, but there's several different ways that that, uh, Luke, the writer, challenges uh, followers of Jesus to shift their paradigm. And and I would say what we're going to focus on this morning especially is about failure. Now, I don't need you to raise your hand, but who in the sanctuary, uh, and, and if I did ask you to raise your hand, I would be raising my, both my hands. Uh, the question is, who in here have, has ever failed? And maybe failed at work, maybe you felt like a failure in your family, maybe you felt like a failure in your education, in your school, uh, sometimes just in life overall, if you're anything like me. Uh, and the reality is, that's everybody, that's all of us. And so there's three things that I want to quickly unpack is, is this, uh, and I wish I had it on the screen, but first uh, is this idea of failing forward. 
What we'll read through chapter 5, verse 1 through 11, is how uh, Peter failed forward. Secondly, the response matters. The response to our failure matters. And simply number three, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. So failing forward, response matters. And do not be afraid. So first, failing forward. Let's look at Luke chapter 5, verse 4. And I'll just read it to you. It says this. When we had finished, uh, when he had finished speaking, Jesus, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let your nets out for a catch. Simon answered, I, lo- I love how Simon answered. He, it's like, oh, mom, you know, has it, your children ever said that to you? Like, okay, or may- maybe they haven't, maybe they fought it. Uh, but I can just sense this uh, resiliency, maybe a little bit of doubt, but this willingness to be obedient uh, simply because Jesus asked him to do it. So he says, Master, and, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, but here's how I imagine him saying this. Uh, Master, we've worked all night long already, but okay, uh, but, and have caught nothing. We've tried all night. We've caught nothing, is what Peter is saying. And then he says, yet... Uh, if you say so, then I will let down the nets. I mean, what we have to understand is these men, Simon and his crew, they were fishermen. It wasn't like they were in the middle of this long getaway uh, guy's retreat weekend where they're going to go fishing and they have this attitude of, you know what, we're not going to eat unless we catch something. Uh, and then they end up not catching things like a classic guys night out, and they end up going to buy food. Uh, But it wasn't one of those weekends where people are like, oh, let's just go on a fishing trip. This was uh, Peter's and and his friends. Uh, By the way, I'm going to use Peter and Simon interchangeably, the names. Uh, This was Peter's livelihood. This was a way that they provided for themselves and their family. And, And not only was this their livelihood, this was, remember, you have to put yourself in a first century context uh, this was a <clears throat> very, in the ancient Near East, was a very shame and honor based culture. And so not only was fishing their livelihood, but because it was their livelihood, if they felt like they had failed in that and couldn't provide for themselves, couldn't especially provide for their family, because it was a very shame and honor culture, it was not just that they failed in fishing, but now they brought shame to themselves and their entire families. And so you have to put yourself in those shoes and in that context that it wasn't just this guy's fishing weekend. It was, uh, it was their jobs. It was their career. It was something that brought them honor when they succeeded. It was something that brought them shame when they failed. And you could imagine during this time uh, that they felt like a failure. I mean, you can kind of hear it in their tone saying, Jesus, we tried. We tried. We tried all night to fish. And we absolutely caught nothing. And I love in actually verse 2, it says this. Uh, Luke says it this way. The fishermen were washing their nets. It was like the end of the day, and they were washing their nets, meaning they were cleaning up. Could you imagine how, the, how Peter and the rest of the fishermen, James and John, how they felt after they were done? They, they had completely failed in fishing. Their job, uh, it's like they had one job, bring home the fish so that way they can feed the family. And they failed in that. And it said in verse 2, it says they were washing their nets at the end of the day. And so you can kind of imagine they're so downcast, uh, so discouraged. 
and maybe a little bit uh, upset with themselves because they essentially failed in, in their job. Their heads were down. Maybe they have had some self-doubt in them. I, I don't know, but I, I can imagine uh, that at the very least, they were extremely discouraged. And I have a strange suspicion that when, I, that when I read this, that I'm not the only one that can resonate with this. That I'm not the only one in here that has ever experienced this kind of feeling, a feeling down, a feeling like we've disappointed somebody or something. The, the feeling that we did not uh, accomplish what we try to accomplish. That we failed in our jobs, again, maybe the people in our lives. If you've ever made someone upset, if you've ever betrayed someone, if you've ever lied in any way, shape, or form, maybe you have felt this before. See, we live in a culture where failure is bad. And I've said this time and time again that failure is like the F word. Like nobody wants to fail. And in our society, and our culture, failure is just flat out unacceptable. And it's no wonder because of that, just like even Peter's story, that in our failures, oftentimes our first response is out of shame. And what we know of shame is that it's toxic. And it just leads us to further the spiral downward, this downward spiral into grief. And again, many of us, including myself, we've reached this point and we know exactly what it feels like. It's almost to the point where it doesn't matter what anybody tells us, it doesn't matter what uh, anyone says to encourage us, that when shame, especially in our failures, seep into our souls, that there's sometimes no turning back. And again, have you ever felt like you failed? I mean, miserably failed. You, you've deeply hurt somebody you love. Have you ever made a huge mistake at work? I know I have. Have you ever disappointed your children? Has your hopes and aspirations actually not come to fruition? And maybe you come to this conclusion that maybe it never will. Have you ever thought your faith has reached a level of such subpar that you're not even quite sure that God loves you or, or know that God is for you? Have you ever failed in speaking justice into the areas of injustice? Where we were silent in the midst of uh, people being marginalized, people being pushed to the outskirts? I think one of the greatest examples is Martin Luther King Jr. when he says, <clears throat> that there's no such thing as neutrality. When it comes to injustice, this is kind of a subtext, uh, that there's no such thing as, as neutrality. Either you're for justice or you're against it. And your silence is a message of being against. And have you ever failed in that way? I know that I have. And so maybe for a moment, this is an opportunity not just to sit and sulk in this area, but what are the areas that we have just failed? Because statistically speaking, 100% of us have either failed before, will fail in the future, or we're living and sitting in this sense of failure even today, right now. 
And I would say, and we move from number two, uh, from number one to number two, is that in your failure, your response matters. Your response matters. Uh, I love this uh, psychologist, uh, Christian, who invented actually what, was, what is coined now as Logos therapy. His name is Viktor Frankl, and he was actually a prisoner in one of the concentration camps in World War II. Uh, and in the midst of his suffering, he says this, and he wrote a book called Man Searching for Meaning. He says, between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and our freedom. I love this. What this means is that in our stimulus, whatever stimulates us, whether it's anger from failure, whether it's shame, uh, whether it's hurt or whether it's pain, whatever you feel here, we oftentimes have a response to what we feel here. Now, what Viktor Frankl is saying is that from our stimulus to our response, don't you forget that there's actually a space. For many of us, that space is big. For many of us like me, that space is small. But nonetheless, there is a space. There's a gap in between the two. And what you decide to do in this space uh, determines everything. This is the response that matters, that dictates how you are going to respond to this stimulus. Uh, And and I would say uh, that not, well, just last week, uh, I had one of the hardest moments in my, I would say, ministry career. Maybe I'm being dramatic, but it was a, it was a hard week relationally uh, with a colleague of mine at the larger Bethany, not West Seattle, but larger Bethany. Um, so surprise, surprise, pastors, even within themselves, they argue with one another and they have conflict. Uh, and and this, was an, this was a point in case of that. Uh, and uh, words were said, and, and you know we weren't necessarily trying to break each other down and hurt each other's feelings, but that's what happened. Uh, and, and I essentially hurt his feelings, he hurt my feelings, uh, and we were both really broken and shook up over this really heated conversation that we had. And I look back, and I look back even when I was writing this sermon, is that within stimulus, my anger, my hurt, my pain, there was a space of who I could have become, uh, but I chose... Uh, Well, I did choose to become somebody, somebody that I'm probably looking back not proud of, if I'm being completely honest with you, which then determined the way I responded. So what I realized is that in the space between stimulus and response, I could have sat with that a little bit longer. I could have processed it a little bit more. I could have prayed about it. I could have given it to God. I could have asked for wisdom from other people, but instead... I reacted emotionally, and that space became smaller and smaller, and I responded in a way that essentially I was not proud of. And then a few days later, we reconnected, we, we reconciled, we talked it over, we prayed, we, we cried, it was like a romantic comedy, we laughed, we cried. We had all the uh, abundance uh, of emotions, and it, and it was incredible, it was powerful, And what that became uh, evident, what that became obvious to me is that oftentimes, yes, failure happens. 
We can probably think of several ways that we failed just even this week. But the biggest failure isn't necessarily simply in our actions, but it's in our response. The biggest failure is not in the action, but it's in our response. So the failure between my, my, I would say my friend, my colleague, the failure wasn't the very fact that we had conflict, because conflict happens. The failure for me was the way I decided to respond. And the way I decided to respond drove the gap between our relationship even further and further away. Fortunately, in God's economy, there's always a second chance, and a third chance, and a fourth chance. And hence, we reconciled, and that response drove us even closer together. I love in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 5, uh, Peter says this. He says, Master, we have worked all night long and have caught nothing. Yet, if you say so, I will let down the nets. See, Peter and the rest of the fishermen, they had every reason to doubt they had every reason to respond to the stimulus of not catching anything to say, I'm done for the day. Thanks for the advice, Jesus. No thank you. Jesus, uh, and essentially it's, a, it's, a, it's an idea of trust, right? Jesus, you're asking me to do this, but they could have easily said, you know what? Maybe they wouldn't say this out loud, but they could have said something like, Jesus, we don't trust you. Or Jesus, yeah, you're telling us to do this, but it's not going to make a difference. We've tried all day, we've tried all night, and we came with nothing but I love their response. Even in the midst of their failure, they say, Jesus, okay, if you say so, I will let down these nets. Their response became the very agent wherein which their failure transformed into opportunity. In their failure, they were obedient and faithful to what God has said to them, what God essentially has called them to do, and they actually came out with abundance. Now, the abundance is not the point. My point is, hey, don't just, uh, you know, don't, Jesus isn't always going to give you everything you want. Jesus, you know, every, Jesus isn't always going to give you uh, that brand new house, that raise, that money, the family, the children, whatever. Sometimes Jesus, just, that just won't happen. So that's, don't, don't mistake this for that. that. That's not what the story is about. The story is, in the midst of their failure, they decided to be faithful and obedient, and yes, they were blessed for it. Their response became the agent in which their failure transformed uh, into opportunity. See, in the English translation, it says their, their response was master. They called him Master. And I know that this idea of master has this connotation of like maybe slave and, and this uh, superior. And yes, there's a little bit of that going on here. But the word master literally meant the one I follow, or the one you follow, the one we follow. And the Greek word here is kurios. Uh, and, and there were many kurios masters of this day. Caesar was considered kurios. Different rabbis were considered curious uh, because it wasn't the sense of master, inferior, superior. It was, you are the one I'm going to follow. You are the one I'm going to be yoked to. The one I'm going to, uh, to be guided by, to, to learn from. 
And, and so what these people, Simon, uh, Simon Peter and his friends, his fellow fishermen, uh, they called Jesus Kyrios, the one that they decided to follow. See, what we see is that they decided to give their failures to Jesus. They said, you know what, I failed, but Jesus, because you've called me and asked me to do something different or to do it again, I'm going to be obedient and I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to follow what you have to say. And even at the end of the story, they don't really know what's going on and Jesus says, you know what, this is kind of ironic. Here's what happened. They didn't catch the fish. They were super bummed. Then Jesus says, go out again and catch the fish. Uh, and they finally caught the fish. And not only did they catch a lot of fish, they caught enough fish for them to sink the boat. And, and so the very thing that they set out to do in the first place, Jesus granted that for them. They came out and they said, oh my gosh, they told all their friends, look at all this fish that I have. They hit the jackpot, essentially. And then at the end of the story, in verse 10 and 11, Jesus says, now leave that and come follow me. And what is their response? They left the hat and they followed him. They followed Jesus, the one that they committed their lives to, the one that they called Kyrios, Master, I will follow you. Now, there's a lot that we can learn from this story. There's a lot that you and I can learn. But it starts with the question, and the question is, who is your curios, your master? In other words, what I'm trying to say is, who will you actually listen to? Will you listen to your failures? Will you listen to your shame? Will you listen to the voices that, you, that come into your head and that you tell yourself these lies? Maybe these lies are from yourself. Maybe these lies are from, from others. Or will you surrender that? Will you cling to the truth of, of how God created you and how much God loves you and how much God is for you and that no matter what you've done and even in your failures, that the love of God for you supersedes that is so much bigger than that. There's nothing that can separate you. This is in the text. This is in the Bible. There's absolutely nothing, nothing that can separate you from the deep love of God that God has for you. There's nothing that you could do to separate that or be separated from that. So what voice will you listen to? This voice of what success looks like? I mean, they, uh, Peter and the rest of the fishermen had so much fish, uh, they could have easily fallen into this lie, well, I've made it. I don't need Jesus. I've made it. This is, this is everything that I wanted and more, literally and more, so much that the boats would break. And yet Jesus says, you know what? You have a decision to make. Either be with the fish or come follow after me. And I'm going to have something bigger and better for you. Where it says I'm going to make you fishers of people, and that's a whole different sermon. Uh, but it's essentially a life to its, to its abundance. And they decided they made the right choice. That didn't happen a lot, but for them they made the right choice and they followed Jesus.
And, and so the question, even in the midst of our failures, that your response in the failure matters. And in your response uh, from failure, how will you respond? Will you listen to the lies? Is that, is that who you're going to follow? Is that your curios? The lies of you're not good enough? The lies that you should be shamed? That should be shameful? The lies that you need to do more? The lies that you need to look a certain way? The lies that you need to behave a certain way? Or are you going to drop that, leave that, and say, my curios, the one who I decide to follow, will be Jesus. And I tell you, this is a paradigm shift that is going to be more challenging, that is more difficult than any part of our faith. We can all check out, we can all go down a checklist and say, well, I've read, I've prayed, I've done this, I've done that, check, check, check. Am I a good Christian yet? We can all do that. But God calls us to something bigger and better and says, you know what? I need you not just to renovate your life, but I need to renovate your soul. And it's this paradigm shift that's going to change everything. But lastly, the imperative, the imperative is this. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. In, in, verse, in verse 8, it says this. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees. And so when he saw all the fish coming in, he was in shock. And then at, that, and at this point, he understood and knew that, the, that Jesus was very different, that Jesus was powerful, that Jesus was divine. And he says, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down on his knees saying, go away from me, Lord, for I am a, I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of the fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. See, though Peter chose well to follow to cast out the nets, to be obedient, to be faithful. Though he chose well, he still ended up, we see later in these verses, that he was wallowing a bit in his, in his own shame, in his own failure. So much, and this is what shame and failure does, it caused him to essentially, metaphorically run away and to hide. What, it, what he's saying is, Jesus, get away from me, not because he was repulsed by Jesus, he was very thankful for Jesus, but it, it almost exposed his own failure, his, own, his lie of I'm not good enough and Jesus is all-powerful and almighty, which is true. I don't even deserve to be in his presence it is a mentality that, that Peter had uh, dictated by his shame and failure. And then he suddenly feels a need to confess that he's a rotten sinner and that he doesn't even belong in the presence of Jesus. And isn't this such a universal problem uh, in our society today? Uh, that in the Christian world, and, and, and even in the non-Christian world, we have this uh, difficulty uh, of moving our, or shifting our paradigm. We get stuck in, in where Peter was stuck at for a moment, where he encounters Jesus, and he says, you know what, I am not good enough. I failed. Even though he made all the right decisions, all the good things happened to him, he could not get out of this stuck. This stuckness, I don't know if that's a word, but he was stuck and he couldn't get out of it. And Jesus says, do not be afraid. 
And Jesus compelled him and convicted his heart and encouraged him to move and to follow and to come with and to leave everything, to have the courage to do that. And lo and behold, we see Peter did. And I had this cool image for you uh, between this idea, and again, this is a problem for all of us in, in, our, in the Christian world and the non-Christian world, is what we would call as this mindset idea. There's two prominent mindsets, and maybe you've read about this. It's that there's a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. A fixed mindset keeps us stuck in this place where, you know what, I failed, so therefore I am a failure. And so therefore, I can never do anything successful. And though that's a bit dramatic, but in extreme, a lot of us, we sit in this fixed mindset, whether it's relationally, in your jobs, in your money, in whatever it is, we sit in this fixed mindset versus uh, this growth mindset saying, although I failed, I'm not a failure, therefore I can continue to grow from what I've learned and improve. And that, there's, uh, that in our minds, that can, we can continue to grow and not be locked in this fixed mindset. And, and that is so true even for our faith, especially in our faith. That we oftentimes, because of the ways that we failed and let people down, have done all the wrong things and made mistakes, we sit in that mindset saying, because of that, I am not worthy. I'm so unworthy, like Peter, that I can't even be in the, in the presence of Jesus let alone the presence of my family members, let alone the presence of my coworkers, let alone the presence of my loved ones or my friends. Because we fall into this fixed mindset when, when what Jesus has for us and calls us to do is to drop what you have, to follow me, I'm going to give you a bigger and better life where you're not just going to be fishing for fish, where you're going to be fishing for people. That's a much higher calling. And they followed. But that requires us to move from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset. To saying, though I failed, though I didn't catch anything today, I'm going to follow after Jesus because the way I respond to my failure is going to be faithfulness and obedience. I'm going to follow after Jesus knowing that I'm going to have learned something. And maybe that's a story for a lot of us. Can you look back at a time where you failed and yet now because of that, you're a better person? Because of that, you're better at your job. Because of that, you're better at loving others. Because of that, you're, you're even better at loving Jesus. I love that Jesus says, do not be afraid. And this Greek word uh, for afraid is the word phobos. And a lot of us, it's very familiar. Uh, that's where we get the word phobia. Phobia. I mean, do you have, an, do you have a, a phobia of something, uh, something so scary, something that you're so fearful of? Maybe it's a spider, a snake, or whatever it is, that when you see it, you just freeze. That's how you become paralyzed suddenly. And, and what Jesus is saying is that unfreeze yourself. I know that you're stuck in this phobia, this phobos, but what Jesus is saying, especially in John 10, 10, is like, that's not the life I have for you. I have a life that's bigger and better, a life that's full of abundance, but you have to move. That takes courage and bravery because it's the work of the cross. When Jesus defeated sin and death on the cross, Jesus defeated our phobos, our fears of staying still, of our failures. And I love this hymn, uh, how deep is the Father's love for us. 
comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But, and I love this, this verse in that, uh, in that song. It says, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. That even in our failures, that it is not through our own might, something that we can boast of, that brings us up and out of that, it's the power and the love and the compassion of Jesus, the one that asks and calls us to follow him. So I'm going to invite the worship team back up right now in our time of response. And I want us to think even through song, maybe through prayer, maybe through meditation, are you going through a season of failure right now? Maybe it's of loss, of grief, of regrets, of mistakes. And what Jesus is saying to you and to me is, do not be afraid. It's easy to be paralyzed and to, and to not move and to be still and to sit in this fixed mindset. That's easy. But when Jesus says, do not be afraid. Leave those voices. Leave those thoughts. Leave those lies. And follow after me. Surrender it. You notice that Peter and the fishermen, they didn't, when Jesus said, come follow me, they didn't say, all right, Jesus, hold on. I'm going to take the fish, and then I'm going to go with you. No, that's not what happened. Jesus says, leave that. Leave the thing that you think is going to bring you life. That's a lie. So leave the lies and come with me empty-handed. Surrender to me because I have a work in you because you belong to God. You belong to this community. And what I love, and this is kind of a subtext as well, is that I don't, I'm not convinced that at this moment in time, that Peter and his friends truly understood who, who Jesus was. Jesus was a, a great teacher, a great rabbi. Yes, he was Messiah, but he was still on mission to, to, to show and to proclaim his Messiahship. And so I'm not convinced that they fully understood even the word master. Again, master was used everywhere, not just to a divine God figure. And so what that tells me is that you, whether, whether you are a Christian in this room right now or not, whether you believe the same thing as I believe, I, I don't think that's the starting place. I think the starting place is this, is that you are invited to live a life that is bigger than of yourselves. You are invited to a life and life to its abundance. And, and, and as of right now, it doesn't even matter your history, your failures, what you believe or what you don't believe. I just want you to know that you belong. And, and, and shame, shame on, on, on me, on us as, as the church, as Christians who say you don't belong until you do these external things. Shame on us for that. And if you've ever been hurt, if you've ever been pushed away, if you've ever been marginalized because we and myself have missed the point, I'm so sorry. 
for myself, for our church, on the behalf of our faith, I'm so sorry. Because what is clear to me is that Jesus says, you know what? Drop what you have, follow after me, we'll go from there. And so that's a message for all of us. Maybe you are a follower, but you've failed. You've made mistakes. You've sinned and, and wronged God, other people. Yet, Jesus says, may you respond like this. Don't believe those lies. Drop it. Leave it on the ground. And just listen to me, what I have to say about you and to you. And I love what Jesus says, uh, what God says to Jesus after his baptism. You are my son, whom I love, whom I am well pleased. And it's with that identity, confirmation, that he was able to experience his, his temptations. It, it was no accident that baptism came first, temptations came second. And so in our midst of our failures, may you remember that you are the son, you are the daughter of God, whom God loves, whom God is well pleased with, no matter what. And may we have confidence and faith, and may we boast in that and that alone. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are a good God, that you are a forgiving God, that you love us no matter what. You just ask us to follow you. God, may we have the courage and the strength and to, res to, to respond in that manner, to do just that, even when we feel like there's things holding us back, like these lies saying that we're not good enough, we're not perfect enough, we're not holy enough, we're not righteous enough. That's a lie. You just ask us to follow you, and may we do that. In your name we pray, amen.